This is a reading from Satsang. Good morning. For the mind in harmony with the Tao, all selfishness disappears. With not even a trace of self-doubt, you can trust the universe completely. All at once you're free, with nothing left to hold on to. All is empty, brilliant, perfect in its own being. In the world of things as they are, there is no self, no non-self. If you want to describe its essence, the best you can say is not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, and nothing in the world is excluded. The enlightened of all times and places have entered into this truth. In it, there's no gain or loss. One instant is 10,000 years. There's no here, there's no there, and infinity is right before your eyes. The tiny is as large as the vast when objective boundaries have vanished. The vast is as small as the tiny when you don't have external limits. Being is an aspect of non-being, and non-being is no different from being. Until you understand this truth, you won't see anything clearly. One is all. All are one. And when you realize this, what reason for holiness and wisdom? The mind of absolute trust is beyond all thought, all striving, is perfectly at peace. For in it, there is no yesterday, no today, and no tomorrow. Thank you, Didi. Peacefully read. That whole idea of trust is a big question. You know, what can you trust in your life and what can't you trust? Well, in terms of what you can trust, death and taxes is the usual answer. However, there's always a bigger question as to really what can you put your trust in in this world? And I'm quite big on that, the whole idea of looking at what, can, you, know, what you can put your trust on. I, I always quote, and I've done it before, that apocryphal tale, uh, and it is apocryphal. Uh, Einstein was supposed to have been asked when he arrived in America, what's the most important question you can ask about life? What's the most important question you can ask about life? And his answer was, the most important question is, is the universe a friendly place or not? Is the universe a friendly place or not? Because if it's unfriendly, then we should use all our understanding, all our resources, everything we've got to defend ourselves from an unfriendly universe. If it's neither unfriendly or friendly, then it doesn't really matter what we do. It's just random. But if the universe is a friendly place, then what we need to be doing is to use all our understanding, all our ideas, all our resources to work out how to cooperate with a friendly universe. How do we cooperate with it? And I think that's, you know, that's an interesting perspective on life. You know, it's interesting to think about, you know, possibly is the universe a friendly place or not? But the story's not saying, is the universe friendly? It's, it's not saying that it is friendly. It's asking the question. Einstein says you should ask the question, is the universe a friendly place or not? He's not saying whether it is 
or it isn't. Now, most of us, I think, here would say, yes, it is a friendly place. Those who have a traditional belief in God want to say that God has a plan for our lives and, you know, that we are looked after. You know, the sun has got its hat on and Jesus is out there looking after us. And those of us maybe who are more contemplative-minded would say that as long as we go into our hearts and we stay there, then we can deal with whatever the universe throws at us. And that any discomfort we may be experienced, that discomfort has meaning. And that by adapting to this discomfort and working with it, we're doing the work of evolution. Those are the two sort of arguments from the contemplative side and from the more traditional Christian side, which is say, yes, the universe is a friendly place. Yes, we should be looking as to how to work with it. As it says in the reading uh, that Didi said, for the mind in harmony with the Tao, all selfishness disappears. With not even a trace of self-doubt, you can trust the universe completely. So, the majority of spiritual thinking comes down on the side of the fact that in some way the universe is a friendly place and that you can cooperate with it in a way that's both meaningful and productive. And yet, like so many spiritual ideas, it's one thing to see the value of them in the context of their own logic. And we do that. We see the value of these spiritual ideas within the context of, of the logic of the ideas. But it's quite another to live them in our day-to-day lives. Both in our own life and in the life of the greater planet, we see things as being distinctly unfriendly. There is a view, there is a view which I think is quite interesting, that, that says that the whole Zen approach, that idea of, seeing things for what they are in the present moment, the whole Zen idea is just a way of avoiding the terrible randomness of life. That Zen really is just a way of avoiding that randomness. That in reality, all life is completely random. And I've heard people say this from a Zen, that life really is random and that you don't know where the next thing's going to come from. So you might as well hunker down to that most infinitesimal part of life, the present moment. And by dealing with that, the present moment, you also deal with all the randomness. Because in the present moment, nothing is random, because it just is what it is. And that's how, you know, one idea of how Zen deals with that randomness. So from this logic, religion and spirituality is possibly a way of avoiding the truth of the randomness of life. And there's you know, definitely an argument that would say that, you know, that, that that randomness is there. That when something awful happens, which it does often and regularly, we justify it by saying there's a greater plan, uh, that we're uh, unaware of the greater plan, and that the only way that we can deal with that greater plan is to go to a point of not knowing. You know, and in contemporary life, you often hear that the idea of not knowing, you know, which delights in removing the need to know. You know, that the contemplative side says, you know, the, you know the, the cloud of unknowing, don't know, that is a way of explaining it. Or there's the religious side of it, uh, which you can hear in, in, in Psalm 139, which says, 
that such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty to attain. And the religious side, they say you can't understand it. You know, I, you, couldn't, you, you shouldn't pretend to understand what's going on. You know, when Job, who had the worst, you know, happened to him, when Job challenged God and said, look, you know, what is going on? Please explain to me why there is such awfulness happening. God then said back to him, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off the dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or, or where were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? In other words, God says, you know, in the Old Testament to Job, don't even try to understand. Because you'll never get it. And that is a you know, good religious song. Don't even try to understand because you'll never get it. So these two arguments for not trying to work out whether we can trust the universe. There are two arguments as not even try and work it out. The first argument is the contemplative approach, which is to say you can only really see life truly if you accept the place of not knowing and stay in that place observing what is. And then the religious approach, which is to say that these are too lofty, these ideas for me, and therefore there's no point in trying to work it out. Just have faith in God. And both those take us away from really trying to work out what is happening. Neither of those ideas encourage us to work it out. So in the end, we're faced with our experience, which is the randomness, beautifully expressed by Shakespeare through Gloucester in Lear, you know, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sports. In fact, that goes beyond randomness you know, and sees ill intent in the universe. But I think Shakespeare there is really saying that life seems that way because of its randomness. And if you were going to invent a god that rules over it all, then they would have to be pretty cruel. It seems like as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. And, you know, science tends to agree with that. Science tends to agree. When you talk to most, you know, what they're called now militant atheists, they they completely rubbish the idea that there is anything positive in the universe apart from existence, that it's all random and then you die. You know, that, that is the basic perspective, that it's all random and then you die. And yet, and of course there is a but coming up here, and yet there is a part of this that, you know, part of us that wants to reject that. In fact, you know, the very fact that you're here on a Sunday morning in the chapel listening to me, you know, is a rejection of that. Our being here is a statement of the fact that we don't see ourselves, I don't think, as part of something random. But there is something behind it all that does seem to have a friendly face. But what can we say about that? Beyond the fact that not knowing is the way forward or that knowledge is, of this is too lofty for us. You know, where can we go with that? Well, I think to begin with, we have our experience of life. And I think we have to begin with that. And beyond the difficulties that we experience, there is a sense that there is something fundamentally good and loving about life. We experience it with our friends and our families. We experience it with the wonder of a beautiful sunset, the golden trees, a Mozart sonata or Michelangelo's David. We, We sense something in that. Somewhere we're touched 
by the universe in many different ways. And that being touched has value and is a pointer to what we can know, that being touched. We can call it love or wonder or beauty. In some way, all of that is beyond the mind. It's not a rational thing. It doesn't have a rational component of knowing. We can't work out why we're touched. We just well up. We just are. We just know it. It defies reasons, and therefore, in some way, it is not of the rational mind. That knowing seems to be of the not knowing that spirituality espouses. It seems to be of the quality of a different sort of knowing. It's like the universe is touching us and prodding us, like a friend saying, Oi, look at this, notice this. This has meaning. We get touched by it. This has meaning. It's as if we're being tapped on the shoulder and asked to turn round, to stop trying to work it all out because it's too lofty, and instead just take note. Just get this. And we do. We seek out and we do respond to that prodding. You know, we go to the music festival for it. We hike up into the mountains for that. We go to art shows. We live here. Most of us experience at some point being tapped on the shoulder, you know, and said, why don't you come and live in Aspen? That's why most of us are here. You know, we think, oh, look, you know, somewhere the universe suggested to us to come and live here. And it, you know, it does take something to come and live here. The valley represents that tap on the shoulder from the universe saying, hey, this is where you're meant to be. We can feel that tap on the shoulder. But where do we take it from there? How, how can you go from there? Well, you know, that leads us on to that whole idea of, of relationship. You know, Rowan Williams's idea of spirituality being, Rowan Williams, the, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, his, his idea of spirituality was the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. He said that spirituality was the cultivation of a sensitive and, and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. And if we're relating to the universe, if we're relating to the universe, then there is a relationship going on. And for a relationship to be going on, it has to be more than random, for a relationship to be happening. Something, if it's random, it has no definite aim or purpose. That is the nature of randomness. It has no definite aim or purpose. And to have a relationship with randomness is impossible. Any relationship with something that is random, the relationship is a figment of our imagination. What we're doing is we're using random events to make up something that is intrinsically not there. It is an idealized, it's a fabricated reality, if you're dealing with randomness. Those experiences are not rationalized. They're not the rationalization of an imaginary relationship with something that's random. They are real and deep and meaningful, those, those experiences of wonder and love and beauty that we have. And to say that we are in relationship to the universe is to say that it's beyond random. And maybe it is a relationship with eternal truth and love. But in a sense, we're getting a bit of ahead of ourselves. Getting that there is a relationship there is a key thing. We've arrived at the fact that the universe does seem to relate to us, and we do seem to relate to it. But how do we get further without falling into those, spiritual, those two spiritual cliches of not knowing? 
or making it too lofty that we have to know by faith what is going on. Well, I think the way you square that is it comes in that reading that that Didi had earlier. I think the mistake that we make is trying to work out whether the universe is a friendly place or not. Because when we start to do that is we start to see the universe as being other than ourselves. We see the universe as being other than ourselves. We're trying to work out what our relationship with the universe is. So it is, it is, it is something other than ourselves. And to be other than ourselves is to set up a duality or even a polarity that demands to be understood and explained. It is demanding by having that other to be understood and explained. What is this that is other than ourselves? Is it for us? Is it against us? How do we relate to it? How do we cooperate with it? Why is it so difficult? Now, in that reading, it talks about the not-to. It is the not-to, the nothing, the idea that nothing is separate. All in, the, in, in the reading, it talks about all being one and not-to. Nothing in the world in that reading is excluded. It says in that reading that oneness is all, all is one. When you realize this, what need for holiness and wisdom? And what the reading is actually saying is that when you realize that, you are all, that we are part of a whole, there is no need to try and work out what is going on because you're dealing with yourself. You're dealing with something that is a fundamental whole rather than something separate from yourself. What need for holiness and wisdom? Because you're dealing with a whole. The answer to the question, is the universe is a friendly place, is really that it's the wrong question. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Or if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole of the body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole of the body was an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and one body. The real question is not, is the universe a friendly place? But what is my relationship to the universe? And the answer in nearly all world religions is that you and the universe are one. You're looking it up, I'm not going to go through all the stuff, but it is there in all the world religions that you and the universe are one. So the question as to whether or not the universe is a friendly place is immaterial, as Paul points out. To challenge the universe, to try to work out what it's doing is nothing less than to cut off something that is in fact part of ourselves. Jesus said, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. On that day, you'll realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. There is a oneness in that. He says, the kingdom of God does not come from your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. It is the oneness of all things. 
The question is, what is my relationship to the universe? And the answer is that you and the universe are one. The idea of trying to work out whether it's friendly or not simply doesn't pertain. And the whole idea of spiritual not knowing or the knowledge being too lofty for us is really all those ideas of not knowing, of it all being too lofty, all those ideas are just a precursor to the realization that there is not a universe out there. There is me in here, but that we are all one and a whole. It's not the universe out there and me here, but there is a whole. And that realization challenges everything. And it frames how we relate to the universe. If we use that Rowan Williams definition of spirituality being the cultivation of a sensitive, rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love, then spirituality is really the way we relate to the universe as part of ourselves. We have to treat the universe with sensitivity and it will reward us because like us, it is actually made up of the same eternal truth and love that we are made up of. Which is why Jesus says there's two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the, this is the great secret. There are no others. You know, the idea you know, when the guru was asked, how do you look after others? There are no others. That when we look out there, we are seeing another part of ourselves. That when I look out, I'm seeing another part of myself. And that we are part of a fundamental connected universe that is connected in an intimate part of ourselves. And somewhere we know that to be true. You know, we feel those nudges, the wonder, the beauty, the love. We hear the echoes of what we know of ourselves in music and art and nature. And some of us even see it. You know, what's referred to by many as peak experiences is often the actual realization of that oneness perceived through our own consciousness, seeing the light, the music of the spheres, of our heart being strangely warmed. Eliot puts it like this in Little Gidding, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are folded in to the knot, the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. That nature of, of, of the oneness. And we, we don't work with that because it's so difficult, because life seems to come at us. And we think, well, of course it can't be connected because I have to deal with all this stuff out there. But actually, when you start to deal with it as being connected, the way you deal with the stuff out there changes. The understanding that we should not relate to the universe as other than ourselves is the most important step that humanity has to make to take it to the next level of consciousness. The, the understanding that we should not relate to the universe as other than ourselves is the most important step that humanity has to make to take it to the next level of consciousness. And science isn't there yet, but you can see it moving in that direction through quantum physics. It is the realization that's been at the heart of all religions and spiritual inquiry since time began, and it is still being worked out today. 
Ilya Delia, who's coming here next year, was asked, you know, why Christianity hasn't got further in this direction, is still bound up in the idea of us and them and sin and all this sort of business. And she says it's because it's all so young. That it's only been going a tiny amount of time, our understanding of all this. You know, the old idea that, you know, about the universe being Encyclopedia Britannica and humanity being the last sentence on the last page in the last paragraph. It's all so young. The understanding is, has only developed to a certain point. And it's going to take ages for it to develop to this understanding, but this is where it's getting to. Imagine if we lived our lives in this way, with our families and our friends, with our circumstances and our jobs. Imagine if world politics understood this, that we are fundamentally one, that there is a community, a world community, that we are all one family. It is the truth. And its working out of this understanding is the way forward. And next week, we're going to look at how we work that idea in practice. How do you work with that idea when you're trying to find a home or live your lives or whatever you're trying to do? So... That's the end of that. <laughs> Where does it all come from? Let's pray. So we pray for wisdom in our world. We pray for understanding. We pray that sense of community and justice and oneness may begin to proliferate people's lives and people the way they deal with the world. We pray for our leaders, all the difficulties that they experience in trying to have the world work. We pray for peace and love from the centre of understanding may come out into the hearts of, of our leaders and all those in authority. I pray for those places where there is division and conflict and diversity, war zones, prisons, justice system. We pray for the movement and transformation of our world. I pray for our valley and the visitors here at the moment those working today, pray for safety for all of those. I pray for those who especially we've been asked to pray for, uh, Patricia Hill, Father Joseph Boyle, Martha Martin, Sophie Layton. We continue to pray for family of Paul Mayer, particularly thinking of, of, of Kristen. Pray for the family of Beverly Knoll, who passed last night, and the family of Kathy Langford, who passed on Wednesday. Uh, there's a memorial for her this Thursday at five o'clock at John Denville Memorial. Just pray for all those touched by illness or death or difficulty, people that are not mentioned here, and we mention their names in our hearts, people that we know need help. Amen.